Chapter Fourteen of One of My Sons by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen: A Sudden Turn. Doctor Frisbee's point had been made. As we separated to our several destinations for the night, it was with the universally expressed conviction that this young girl, for all her beauty and attractive qualities, had been an apple of discord in her uncle's house, and that in this fact, rather than in an impatient desire to enjoy the wealth of a man who was never close with his sons, the unnatural crime we were considering had originated. The evidence elicited from the first witness called to the stand on the following morning tended to substantiate this conclusion. Nellie Stryker, an old inmate of the Gillespie house, answered the coroner's questions with great reluctance. She had been maid to Mrs. Gillespie, nurse to all the children, and a trusted servant in the household ever since the latter grew beyond her care. Of the attempts made upon her master's life, the last of which had only been too successful, she knew little, and that only by hearsay, but she was not quite so ignorant concerning a certain conversation which had been held one morning in Mr. Gillespie's room between that gentleman and his youngest son. She was sitting at her needle in the adjoining dressing-room, and whether her presence there was unsuspected by her master or simply ignored, they both talked quite freely, and she heard every word. Urged to repeat this conversation, the good old soul showed a shamefaced reluctance which bore out her reputation for honesty and discretion, but she was not allowed to escape the examination set for her. After repeated questions and a show of extreme patience on the part of the coroner, she admitted that the topic discussed was the state of Mr. Alfred's affections. This young gentleman, as was publicly known, had lately engaged himself to a southern lady of great pride and high social distinction, and his present disagreement with his father arose out of his wish to break this engagement. His father had no patience with such fickleness, and their words ran high. Finally, Alfred threatened to follow his own wishes in the matter, whether it gave satisfaction all round or no, declaring that he had been a fool to tie himself to a girl he cared nothing about, but that he would be a still greater one if he let the mistake of a moment mar his happiness for life. But the old gentleman's sense of honor was very keen, and he continued to urge the claims of the southern lady, till his son impetuously burst it out. I thought you wanted one of us to marry Hope. This caused a break in the conversation. Do you care for Hope? the old gentleman asked. I thought it was well understood in this house that George, not you, was to be given the first opportunity of winning her. The oath with which Alfred answered was shocking to Nellie's ears, and affected her so deeply that she heard nothing more till these words caught her attention. George has everything he wants unlimited indulgence in each and every fancy, the liking of all the men, and the love of all the women. I am not so fortunate. I am neither a favorite with my mates, nor the petted darling of their sisters. I like my ease, but I could give that up for hope. She is the only woman I have ever seen capable of influencing me. I have been quite a different man since she came into the house. If that is love, it is a very strong love. Such love as makes a man out of a nobody. Father, let me have this darling girl for my wife. George does not care for her, not as I do. He would be a better fellow if he did. 
Mr. Gillespie seemed quite upset. He loved his son as the apple of his eye, and would very possibly have been glad to see the matter so adjusted. But it did not tally with his idea of what people had a right to expect from his sons, and he told Alfred so in rather strong language. "'Can you remember that language?' asked the coroner. She tried to make him believe, and herself too, no doubt, that her memory would not serve her to this extent, but her honesty eventually triumphed over her devotion to the family interests, and she finally admitted that the old gentleman had said, "'While I live, I will not put up with rivalry of any kind between my sons. George is fond of hope, and I long ago gave him my permission to woo and marry her.' that you are the child of my heart shall not make me blind to the rights of one I loved before you ever saw the light. Were I to permit such shilly-shallying, George would have a right to reproach me with his wasted life. No, the influence which you call so great must be exerted in his behalf rather than yours. He needs it, Alfred, as much, if not more, than you do. As to your present engagement, you may break it, or you may keep it, but do not expect me to uphold you in any love-making with your brother's choice till hope has openly signified her absolute refusal of his intentions. This she is not likely to do. George has too many conspicuous attractions. She has refused him once. Not because her fancy was caught by his younger brother, but because she wished to see some reformation in his habits. In this she was perfectly right. George will have to change his mode of life very materially before he can be regarded as worthy of such a wife. The same might be said of me, but I am no George. I am anxious to make such a change, yet you give me no encouragement in my efforts, and even deny me the opportunity of winning her affections. You are not the first to enter the field. Your older brother has the prior right, and as I view the matter, the only right to approach hope in the attitude of a lover." The oaths which this excited turned the poor old listener cold. Alfred could not see the justice of his brother's course and stormed away about the fairness being shown to the young girl herself, who possibly looked upon the matter in another light than he did. "'Then you have been making love to her on the sly,' vociferated Mr. Gillespie, totally forgetting himself. But this the young man denied. If he understood her better than others did, it was because he loved her better. He was positive that she did not care for his brother, and all but certain she did care for himself. At all events, he flattered himself to this extent. This called forth a few more bitter words from his father, and Alfred went out banging the door behind him. And did you see any change in the manner of Mr. Gillespie towards his sons after this misunderstanding with Alfred? The witness appeared to weigh her words, but when she answered, it was evident her care arose from a desire to present the subject fairly. I thought Mr. Gillespie talked less and looked about him more, and the young gentlemen seemed conscious of this change in him, for they were very careful not to show their feelings too plainly in his presence. Yet there was a manifested distrust between them? I fear so. Amounting to animosity? That I cannot say. I never heard them exchange hard words. Only neither of them would leave the field open to the other. If Mr. George stayed home, Mr. Alfred found some excuse for doing so also. And if Mr. Alfred showed a disposition to linger in the parlor, Mr. George brought in his friends and made a social evening of it. 
And is this all you can tell us? On this topic? Yes. You never saw Miss Meredith speaking apart to either of these two men? No, sir. On the contrary, she appeared to avoid all private conversation with any of them. Nor ever heard either of these men swear he would have Miss Meredith for his wife, no matter who stood in the way, or what means were taken to stop him? Oh, I once heard Mr. Alfred make use of some violent expressions as I was passing his door, but I cannot be sure he spoke the precise words you mention. He falls into fits of anger at times, and then is liable to forget himself. But his ill-temper does not last long, sir. It is quite unusual for him to show unkindness for any length of time. After the close of this examination, so painful to the witnesses and so humiliating to the three persons who most cherished feelings were thus exposed to the public eye, the three sons of Mr. Gillespie were called up, one after the other, and questioned. Leighton made the best impression, not being involved in the delicate question which had just come up. He had no blushes to conceal, nor any secret animosities to hold in cheek. George, on the contrary, seemed to have reached a state of exasperation which made it difficult for him to preserve any semblance of self-possession. He stammered when he talked, and looked much more like having it out with his brother in a hand-to-hand -hand fight, than submitting to an examination tended to incriminate one or both of them on a charge of murder. Alfred showed less bitterness, possibly because he felt secure in his position towards the woman whose beauty had occasioned this rivalry. Of the facts brought out in their accumulated testimony, I need say little. They added nothing to the general knowledge, and the inquiry adjourned with the promise of still more serious work for the morrow. Hitherto the evidence had been of a nature to show first that a crime had been committed, and secondly, that the relations between Alfred and his father had been such as to occasion a desire on the former's part to be free from the watchful eye of one who stood between him and any attempt he might make to win the affections of the woman upon whom he had set his heart. On this morning the testimony took a turn, and an endeavor was made to show a positive connection between Alfred Gillespie and the drug which had ended his father's life, or so it appeared at the time. The visit he paid to the dining-room during the fatal hour preceding his father's death was brought out, and the acknowledgment reached that he went there in search of his missing pencil. Then the detectives were called to the stand and requested to relate the circumstances connected with the finding of a certain cork and file, the one under the edge of the dining-room rug and the other under the clock on the mantel-shelf. These aforementioned articles were then produced, and after positive declaration had been made that they had not been allowed to come in contact since falling into the hands of the police, they were severally handed down to the jury, who immediately proceeded to satisfy themselves that the scent of bitter almonds was nearly as marked in one as the other. This point having been reached, and universal expectation raised, Sweetwater handed up another article to the coroner, saying, In this box, which is as nearly airtight as I could procure offhand, I caused to be placed, as soon as possible after finding it, the pencil which we came upon in our search of the dining-room floor. Like the file and the cork, it was kept isolated in a perfectly clean glass till this box could be procured. And with this fact in mind, may I ask you to open the box and hand the pencil round among the jury? 
Instantly a great stir took place in the whole body of spectators. Necks were stretched, heads were craned, and a general sigh swept from end to end of the room as the coroner wrenched the cover from the box, lifted out the pencil, raised it to his nose, and then passed it down to the jury. Only one person in sight failed to follow these significant movements with looks of curious interest, and that was the unhappy man who thus saw the finger of suspicion, which had been simply wavering in his direction, settle into immobility and point inexorably towards him. A white face and a sinking heart were shown by Alfred Gillespie at that moment, and in the features of hope, disclosed for one instant under the stress of her mortal anxiety, I saw his anxiety reflected as in a mirror. The jury whispered together with nods and significant looks as this small pencil passed from hand to hand. I had almost said from nose to nose. Then silence was restored, and the coroner, with a sudden change of manner startling to observe in one whose bearing and tone reflected his feelings almost too openly, called an expert in poisons to the stand. His testimony established three facts that the smell of the prussic acid is unmistakable, that this poison, though volatile in its character, preserves its own individual odor for a long time, if not subjected to too much air, and lastly, that if the pencil smelt of the bottle, the pocket in which they both had lain would also give out the same odor of bitter almonds. When the expert was seated, Detective Sweetwater was called back and then for the first time I noticed a large package encumbering the coroner's desk. As this package was being unrolled, I stole a look at the witness, who from his assured air evidently had the thread of Alfred's future destiny in his hand, and was astonished to see how attractive a very plain man can sometimes become. Perhaps I have not spoken of this young detective's plainness. It was so marked and of such an unrelieved type that after once seeing the man, you could never again think of him without recalling his lank frame and inharmonious features. Yet as he stood there, calm amidst the tremor of this throng, his eyes sparkled with such intelligence that I trembled for the man whose cause he was expected to damage with his testimony. Seeing that my feelings were shared by those about me, I glanced back at the coroner's table to see what the unrolling of that package had revealed and saw hanging from the coroner's hands three vests which he proceeded to display one by one before the witness what are these he asked with a stern look down the room calculated to suppress any too open demonstration of interest vests the property of the three gentlemen members of the present gillespie household in other words, those severally worn by Messrs. george leighton and alfred gillespie on the evening of their father's death how do you know these particular vests are the ones then worn? From their material and cut, of which I took a special note at the time. No other way? Yes, sir. Foreseeing the difficulties which might arise if it ever became necessary to distinguish the vests then worn from the half-dozen others which we should doubtless find in their well-supplied wardrobes, I took the precaution of secretly running my finger over a freshly inked pen before taking hold of their vests in the search I had been commanded to make of their persons. If the marks of my finger can be seen on the white lining of the vests now in your hands, you may be sure that they are the ones subjected to my search on that night, 
as I communicated my intention to no one, and have since been exceedingly careful not to take anyone into my confidence concerning this little trick. The coroner turned the vests. On the back of each a black spot was plainly visible to the remotest observer in the room. A murmur of mingled admiration and suspense responded to this discovery, and the coroner turned again to Sweetwater. "'May I ask,' said he, "'if you are in a position to tell us which of these young gentlemen these several vests belong. The Messieurs Gillespie can be trusted to identify their own property,' was the answer. "'But I doubt if you will consider this a necessary formality.' There is no scent of bitter almond lingering about any of these pockets. There was none on that night. This I made it my especial business to ascertain. And he glanced at Alfred as much as to say, Thank me for doing you what justice I can. Such surprise followed this unexpected acknowledgment from one whose manner had given promise of a very different result, that it was hard to tell where the effect was greatest. Hope's veil was shifted again, and the three brothers looked up simultaneously and with an equal show of relief. But their countenances fell again as they noted the witness still on the stand, waiting. My countenance fell too, or rather my heart began to throb apprehensively, as I now perceived the face and form of Mr. Grice, slowly appearing round the corner of a certain jut in the wall where he had held himself partially concealed during most of the day's proceedings. If this sagacious but sickly old detective thought it worth his while to come forward, I thought it worth mine to note upon whom or on what his glance first fell. But I had forgotten his habit, known to most men who have had anything to do with this celebrated detective. He had looks for nothing save the umbrella he rolled round and round between his palms, though his face, if this indicated anything, was turned towards the seat where the three Gillespies sat rather than towards the witness with whose testimony past, present, and to come he was probably fully acquainted. Meantime the coroner was speaking. When you failed to find the tell-tale scent of bitter almonds tainting the pockets of any of the clothes worn by these young gentlemen at the time you searched them, what did you do? As soon as the opportunity offered, that is, as soon as I found myself unobserved, I searched the wardrobes of these young gentlemen for other vests and pockets. Ah, and did you come upon any article of clothing giving signs of having at any time come in contact with this pencil or this bottle? I found that, he returned, indicating a fourth garment, which the coroner now deftly drew forth from the paper where it had hitherto lain concealed. This garment was a vest like the others, and like them of a plain and inconspicuous pattern. As it was lifted into sight, a groan was heard which seemed to spring from the united breasts of the three young men behind him. Then one bounded to his feet. "'That is my vest!' he shouted. "'What damned villain says there is anything the matter with it?' It was George. The two other brothers had shrunk back out of sight. End of chapter 14